The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I have Rebecca Decker, and Rebecca is the founder of Evidence-Based Birth, and she's also the author of Babies Are Not Pizzas. They're born, not delivered. (laughs) Dr. Decker is a mother of three children, ages 5, 7, and 10, and she's earned a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in nursing, and she's built a strong reputation in maternal and infant health circles for her pioneering work uh, as the founder of Evidence-Based Birth. The mission of EBB is to raise the quality of childbirth care, childbirth care globally by putting accurate evidence-based research into the hands of families and communities so they can make informed and empowered choices. So thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank <laughs> you. I'm us. so excited to be here, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so first of all, what is evidence-based care? What is evidence-based Yeah. So a lot of people get confused about this. Some people think, um, most people, when you ask them what evidence-based care is, they say it's care that's based on research. And while um, there is truth to that, and that is one piece of evidence-based care, I like to say that evidence-based care is kind of like a three-legged stool where you have the research evidence that can help you make decisions. So that's Um, up-to-date information about benefits and risks of all your different choices. But another leg of the three-legged stool is a care provider who can help you interpret that evidence. And the the third and final leg is your personal goals, values, and preferences. And this definition of evidence-based care was proposed by the founders of evidence-based medicine in the early 1990s and published Um, in a book that was published by JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association. So that is actually the original definition of evidence-based care, but most people are not familiar with that. They think, oh, just the research. Some people also think evidence-based medicine is maybe just following the guidelines or following a guideline. Sometimes I will hear uh, some people say, well, of course we practice evidence-based care. We never induce anyone before 39 weeks. And it's almost like by doing one practice, they feel like their entire hospital has been (laughs) blessed by the evidence-based care magic wand (laughs) because they only do one, you know, because of this one thing that they do. When reality, evidence-based care involves evaluating all of your practices, small, little, medium-sized things that you do on a daily basis to determine if they're supported by the research. And then also keeping in mind, are we individualizing care? Um, Because each client is unique. So are we individualizing care to our our clients' goals, values, and preferences? So that's that's in a nutshell what evidence-based care is. And surprisingly, um, not a lot of people get true evidence-based care in um, facilities in the United States um, at the time of childbirth. So what makes it evident, like what makes it evidence-based? Is it a research hospital or a doctor? I mean, what, what's basically the standard for something to be evidence-based? Well, ev- true evidence-based care, in my opinion, is when you have 
when the birthing family is given choices and when they're given accurate information about the pros and cons of all their choices and then letting them make the decision. And in reality, what we have in most institutions is, is more of a cookie cutter. Well, this is the way we do things. And there's a lot of rules and policies that you're not allowed to do this and you're not allowed to do that. Anytime you're saying to a client, well, you're not allowed to do that. And often what clients are asking for are ha more hands-off type care or non-drug comfort measures, such as getting in the tub or being able to walk around or being able to eat a light meal during labor. And when you're telling people that these things, which um, evidence has shown are good or okay and not harmful, and you're telling them, no, you're not allowed to do that because of our policy. If you have policies that are not evidence-based, then you're not providing evidence-based care. It's really that simple. And unfortunately, there's a lot of hospital policies around the country that are set up in that way. So it's more policy for that individual ho hospital than something that they've researched and, and decided that this was best practice and keeps the mom safe. Yeah, a lot of a lot of policy decisions, a lot of policies in hospitals are just handed down over the ages. They're, they're cultural practices. This is the way we do things because we believe it's safest or we believe it protects us from liability. But that doesn't necessarily mean that research supports what they're doing. And often um, they might not be aware of the latest research. I mean, just to give you one simple example, yeah. there's a ton of research on nitrous oxide laughing gas, that uh -huh. it's a great, a great tool for labor for, um, women have really high satisfaction when they use it. It helps reduce anxiety. It, it's a good option for people who maybe don't want an epidural, but they need something to get them through. Um, and there's tons of research supporting it in other parts of the world. It's like available in every unit, but in the United States, it's still pretty rare to have nitrous oxide be an option. And when patients say, can we please, can you please start a nitrous oxide program? They run into all kinds of uh, pushback from anesthesiologists, from administrators, from OBs, from people who have really no idea what the evidence says. And they're, they're afraid of this because it's new and different. And I like to tell the story about, um, my husband's family, there were, there were four boys in his family. One of the first things I learned about his family is that when they were younger, and even as they got older, it was this running joke in their family that if their mom made something different for dinner that they'd never had before, <laughs> they would say, different equals bad. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's evidence-based. That's totally evidence-based. <laughs> they would they would complain anytime, you know, they wanted the mom wanted to do something different, the boys would complain about it. Uh -huh. And it was just this kind of running joke, different equals bad in the in their family. But it's just so, that's so classic human behavior yep. that we don't like change. We don't like things that are different. We're afraid of things that are different. So in this medical model of care that has been, you know, chugging along for decades, states, um, with just minor changes here or there, but anything big, like giving birth in a tub of water or having yeah. nitrous oxide or eating during labor, these things, these things seem like scary and huge, even even if um, there's research evidence out there to support giving families those options. So what are some of the, what's the thing you get asked the most if it's evidence-based or not? 
Oh, there's just like a million questions people ask me. I don't know if I could say there's one. I know that with first time parents, often they're really, um, they've been indoctrinated into U.S. culture, birthing culture, and they're, they think it's dangerous to eat during labor, for example. Yeah. Um, they think, well, won't you choke on your food if you need general anesthesia? And, um, but when I explained to them the history of where this came from in the 1940s, when everybody had a gas mask put on them during vaginal births. So everybody was put under general anesthesia for vaginal births and nobody had their airway protected. Yes, women vomited and aspirated on their mm. stomach contents and died, but 100% of people were being given general anesthesia, often by people who were not trained in giving general anesthesia, and they were not protecting the airway. And you take a rule from that time period, no eating during labor, and now you're applying it to people today who, for the most part, don't give birth under general anesthesia. And if they do, it's done by a very well-trained uh, person in anesthesiology and their airway is protected, and they're given medications to decrease the acidity of their stomach contents. There's a lot that's changed yeah. about anesthesia. And so when you explain that there's actually research showing that there's higher satisfaction when families eat during labor, and there's no evidence right now that it causes harm, then they're like, oh, well, I definitely want to eat. Like, I don't want to starve. Like, what if I get hungry? Yeah, it's really so, hard to give birth without, I mean, especially if your labor is 12 24 hours in the hospital and the only thing you're allowed is ice chips. I mean, uh, we don't ask our normal people to, to fast that long. And, and when we do, you know, there's all sorts of hoopla about, <laughs> you know, the torture that we're submitting them to for whatever, you know, blood tests or whatever we're needing them to fast. To. But we expect moms in labor, which is a very physical activity to not eat. Yeah. And, and that brings up another point and um, that has to do with professional guidelines. So some people will say, well, we follow ACOG guidelines, which I like to challenge because if a hospital says they follow ACOG guidelines, I bet, I bet you anything, I could look at their typical hospital practices and policies and they might be following less than half of ACOG's guidelines. If you really did an audit to see like what their practices are. <laughs> so when you're like, going in to interview a hospital, you should bring the ACOC guidelines. And no, well, I mean, there's like I'm hundreds so of kidding. guidelines, but that, that's what just makes it silly. Yeah, they may follow the one that says um, eating should not be recommended, um, but they 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 don't follow other ones that say VBAC is a good option. You know, for mm -hmm. example, they might yeah, have a ban a on VBACs. Um, but that just brings up another point though, and that is that, um, professional guidelines can be flawed. So there's this really amazing book called How to Read a Paper, which is the kind of one of the classic books on evidence-based medicine, evidence-based practice. And there's um, actually an interesting section of the book all about professional guidelines and how biased they can be. How, um, you know, the, the clinicians on those committees that write the guidelines um, have biases. And they do lit reviews and they decide which papers they're going to include and which ones they're not going to include. And I can tell you when ACOG says that eating is not recommended, they did not look at all the research mm. on eating during labor. And they relied heavily on their own opinion about what is safe or what should be done. So that's, you know, um, always a caveat is, you know, it's good to know what the guidelines say, but it's also important to know that guidelines are not some like infallible, you know, scripture that must be followed because yeah. um, sometimes guidelines are outdated. Sometimes they're just wrong. 
And that's why it's helpful to go to the research evidence itself and find out what the research says. But it's it's hard to change your mind if you have this feeling that something's unsafe, and even if the research proves proves otherwise. It's it's sometimes hard to open up your mind enough to change. And when you're talking about somebody else's care, I mean, I do have to put myself in the position of these hospitals and the in the doctors is they they practice defensive medicine a lot of times. They don't want to slip up at all because otherwise they're held liable, you know. And so they 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 say, well, we're just um, we're just erring on the side of super safety. Looks like the food eating example. And so we're not gonna <laughs> we're gonna let you eat. But if you happen to pass out because your blood sugar is too low, we we're not liable for that because we did keep you safe because you won't aspirate in case we have to put you under general. It's like they 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 have to practice so defensively because they. Are, are genuinely worried about their patient safety. And I think it's interesting, though, a lot of practices that I see, it, it's a lot easier for when there is changes made, it's a lot easier to ban something, to stop doing something and, and, not, and, and disallow it than it is to start doing something new. So we end up so, just piling rules and rules and rules. Lots of rules about what you can't do in hospitals and less about like what are some new um new modalities that might be helpful or beneficial that don't have risks that increase satisfaction. It's a lot harder to get some of those simple things. Like something as simple as like starting a doula program so that there's always a doula available on every shift for clients who want one. I mean, talk about something that could really improve satisfaction, lower intervention rates, um, having an extra set of hands, somebody who's there for the emotional and physical support of the laboring person. But I've talked with people who've started hospital doula programs and it is like insane. The, the mental barriers people have Mm. to something like this in terms of like everybody thinks has negative thoughts about what it's going to be like and how terrible it's going to be. Really? And really about doula. Sorry, I'm, I'm crawling out of my cave that I was born in obviously, but what would be the, the downside to having a doula in a hospital? To think they'll they'll be in the way or something? Yeah, yeah, they'll be in the way. They'll interfere. They'll make more work for us. Um, their our patients won't be as compliant because they'll oh. the will, you know <laughs> oh <laughs> um you know it just a lot of like that it just goes back to the different equals bad different <laughs> philosophy equals bad. yeah yeah different equals bad and people human beings are afraid of change. Not all human beings, like some enjoy change and are always looking for different ways to improve and they're curious and open-minded. But what I have found is that in institutions, a lot of times people have been kind of um, brought into this culture of this is the way we do things and we're very strict about it. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to bring in new ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, you know, 10,000 women the next year come in and say, hey, I have this article I printed out <laughs> from Evidence Based Birth. And yeah, I'm like, <laughs> and change does happen. It's just, it's it's slow. It's frustrating. Yeah. Um, it does happen. I know there was one success story in my community with um, um, eye ointment. So there was, um, there's there's three local hospitals within a few miles of me. Two of them, if you declined the eye ointment for your baby, which um, you can read more about at evidencebasedbirth.com slash eye ointment, but it's not necessary in 100% of cases. And it's perfectly reasonable for some families to decline it in certain situations. And in two of the hospitals, they were like, no big deal. You know, if you decline the eye ointment, maybe we, they make, might make them sign a waiver or something, mm-hmm. sign a form. 
saying that they declined it. Um, but the other hospital, they would actually call social services and have child protective services come investigate the family. Wow. Um, for eye ointment. Which, for refusing the eye ointment for a newborn. Yeah, which is a huge, I mean, talk about bullying and fear tactics. And not only that, but that can have, you know, major consequences. Yeah. For a family, that's very traumatic. And, you know, you never know what CPS might invent or find, you know, when they, uh, and the other thing is, is it's, it's not good for CPS because in my state of Kentucky, they are so overwhelmed. They don't need to be brought into these little power struggles between parents and providers. And so they're being called into these like stupid situations where they're not needed. And it's kind of like a retaliation against the family. Um, but as things would have it, Gradually, um, there became some allies on the inside who agreed with the patients that this was uh, not a good thing to do to parents. To force them, yeah. And they called the question to administrators and were able to negotiate actually writing out an actual policy saying that CPS would not be called for this, that instead the parents would sign a waiver or something like that. And, and, um, even to this day, occasionally some nurses still are not familiar with that new policy. And I even just as recently, the policy changed a couple years ago, but as recently as a few months ago, I had somebody, um, tell me that the nurse said, well, we're going to have to call CPS on you because you're refusing the eye ointment. And she's like, but, but isn't there a new policy? And the nurse went and checked, was like, you're right. There's a new policy. Never mind." Um, so <laughs> what used what? to be a really stressful thing to do for parents, they had to decide, are we going to risk having a child protective services investigation in order to avoid this minor medical procedure? Um, now is just, you know, not a big deal. And yeah. so that's kind of a cool, um, you know, made, made all of us really happy in the community that that was kind of like a thorn in our side that's now gone. And it took, both. It took parents on the outside who were, you know, wanting options. It also took doulas. Some of the local doulas were some of the go-betweens um, and childbirth educators who were able to use their influence to convince administrators to make this change. Um, so it was kind of like both sides of the equation. We had people on the outside of the system and people on the inside of the system who kind of work together to yeah. get this um, change in practice, which is really cool to see. So change does happen. It's just, like I said, it's not easy. It's not like you just flip a switch. Right. It does take effort and it sometimes can take years. So um, there are so many different ways to birth. I, I tell people, whether you want to give birth with the dolphins or with a tummy tuck on a table, I don't care. Like you, you, you have so many choices in birth. Um, but so some, some things that may be really important to one person are not so important to others. And so when somebody has something that's very important to them, that's like, say the eye ointment, See, that's an example of something that wasn't super important to me. And so I probably wouldn't have fought the hospital. But had it been like cord, delayed cord and clamping was important to me, um, what can, um, what, can um, um, what can people do to come kind of come into the provider with the best chance possible of, even if it's against policy, getting some sort of 
you know, special accommodation for their desire. Does that make sense? Because yeah. you, you can't go into the hospital and storm them and say, this is a bad place. You're killing mothers. <laughs> well, and that's not how, nope, that's mo- not how I train happens. people to do it. But um, I do, it does. I think, first of all, you have to know the environment. Like what, what kind of hospital are you going to? What are the typical routine practices there? How accepting, welcoming are they of different options versus are they, or are they on the other extreme and very hostile? And sometimes it helps to know the lay of the land, what you're walking into, what their statistics are, what their culture is. And where do they find and out? Then, where do you find out this information? How, how can well, you research a hospital? <laughs> Usually I tell people to find an evidence-based birth instructor near you because that's exactly what they are. They are all required to do that as part of their training Perfect. is to in kind of in, um, learn the statistics and the culture of all of the local facilities for birthing. And then they give that information to their clients Very as part cool. of their prenatal care or their childbirth classes. So, so once you kind um, of know the lay of the land, what, what you're up against. Yeah. And it's actually part of our evidence-based birth childbirth class that we teach, which is a hybrid class, partly online and partly in person. Um, it's required that each instructor give a presentation to their students about um, what's going on at each of the hospitals and um, if there's any birthing centers or if there's a home birth culture. Mm-hmm. And so, but if you don't have an EBB instructor, often just talking with the local doulas. So definitely, mm-hmm. um, you know, even if you're not sure if you want to hire a doula, even interviewing them or asking on local Facebook groups or different community groups, uh, forums where um, moms get together and talk about their experiences. Often the doulas are the ones that know yeah, I was gonna say, what's uh, going on. Yeah. The doulas are a great resource because they're kind of flies on the walls. They get to see how providers. They see how things are done mm-hmm. in every hospital. And, they, yep. and unlike the nurses at each hospital, they only see what's done at their hospital. So sometimes they're not aware of those like slight differences between yep. facilities. So first of all, knowing kind of what you're walking into. And then if you are walking into a situation that's going to be more difficult, like some places are so welcoming now of birth plans and they wouldn't bat an eye if you said, I want delayed core clamping. I don't want ointment. I want this. I want that. They would be like, sure. We love that. You're great. You'll be fine here. Other hospitals are going to be more tricky. Mm-hmm. And that's when you have to decide, you know, what are your priorities? Yeah. Because it, you, you might have to negotiate in order to keep the peace. You might have to give up some of what you want in order to get what you really want. Yep. And although that seems ridiculous, like as the birthing parent, you should be able to make that decision. Um, practically and realistically, you don't want to set up an adversarial right. you know, encounter. So that's why I usually will go over the birth plan with our clients who take our class and be like, you know, if this is what you really want, if you really want this option, um, let's talk about how you can make that happen. And let's also talk about the fact that you might experience a lot of pushback for this Mm -hmm. and how are you going to handle that? And then we actually usually rehearse what, what they would say. So I would pretend to be the person, the staff member kind of questioning them and pushing back on, on what they want. And, and the partner has to like, um, respectfully decline or respectfully explain why they, you know, explain that they're going to be doing this. So just, you know, I think it takes some, some planning It definitely takes some mentorship from somebody who's been through it before. Um, Now, if you just are happy to go in and you don't really care what you get, what kind of care you get, you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast, but yeah, exactly. um, (laughs) if, If you were, 
then, you know, maybe not, maybe it doesn't matter. But for the most part, it really helps to have a plan in place and have um, somebody there who's done it before and can help you kind of navigate that environment. And that's one of the reasons why I think doulas are so essential uh, for hospital births and home births, actually, for especially yeah. for first-time parents. Yeah. Especially for first-time parents. Awesome. Okay. So can can I ask you just some of the funny, I've just got a list of kind of funny things people ask. Can we dispel some of the myths surrounding childbirth sure. with evidence-based <laughs> research? Okay. So the one thing is I've heard if you eat pineapple, it will help you go into labor faster. So <laughs> is this evidence-based? I have a video on that on YouTube and it's actually people find evidence-based birth through this pine, they, from Googling from pineapple, pineapple <laughs> induced labor. So right now your listeners can Google, um, does pineapple induce labor? And uh-huh. one of the top two results will be evidence on using pineapple to naturally induce labor, which comes from evidencebasedbirth.com. Mm-hmm. And it's a video um, and blog article we did all about the evidence on pineapple (laughs) and it's actually tradition. It's a very traditional thing all around the world to use pineapple, especially in India and Bangladesh. Um, but there's just only been a few studies on this. So there's no, not been any studies I know of on human beings. They've done it, um, use pineapple in pregnant rats, um, and isolated human uterine tissue in a Petri dish. So, these are pretty, um, and the, yeah. and the rat was rat tissue. It wasn't like the rats. It was like they took the tissue from the pregnant rats, and they did find that um, the tissue did contract more <laughs> with pineapple awesome. juice. And then they did a follow up study with actual pregnant rats and had them um, either have saline, like salt water, or pineapple juice, and they studied the effects of it. And um, let's see. Oh, did you? You're looking it up right I'm now. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, let's see. It looks like what the evidence shows is that it works when you directly expose it to the uterine tissue. Um, but they think that when you actually eat pineapple, mm. um, there's like enzymes in your digestive right. tract that kind of digest the pineapple ju- juice and kind of lo- make it lose its like pot- potency. Yeah. So it does cause contractions, but when that's only when you like – put the juice directly on the uterus, <laughs> which we're not generally which doing. <laughs> you're not doing. So there's no evidence though, that it causes miscarriage or can induce labor, but, um, so it's probably not evidence-based, but it's also not likely to be harmful unless you eat too much and get a sore mouth, which has happened to me before. Yeah. So, um, you know, go ahead and enjoy it's your pineapple. <laughs> maybe, um, maybe if you have gestational diabetes, you don't want to eat it cause it's kind of sweet. Uh, yeah. A little bit of natural sugar in there. So yeah, that's a question that brings people to our website all the time. And how about um, vitamin K? That's a big question I get because it's, vitamin K is not a vaccine. People think it's a shot. It's not actually a vaccine. It's a a vitamin. So what are the, what is evidence about getting the vitamin K shot? Yeah, the vitamin K shot is one of the most controversial (laughs) topics we've ever covered at evidencebasedbirth.com. Probably second only to circumcision. Actually, it's probably more controversial than circumcision. What? Because like, really? You, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Because um, people, like you said, they, they, they miss, they confuse it with vaccines. So you get a lot of that kind of almost hysteria about the vitamin K shot. Uh, but vitamin K is uh, a vitamin that's derived from plants. And 
we get most of our vitamin K from plants. Very little of it is made in our gut. So because newborns are not eating plants until, you know, they start eating solids at around six months, there was something called vitamin K deficiency bleeding, which is when you just spontaneously start bleeding, often in the brain, uh, because you don't have enough vitamin K to help your body clot. So um, vitamin K is really not present in, uh, it's not stored well in the blood. So it's not like something you can get from delayed cord clamping or anything like that. And it's also doesn't transfer very well from breast milk. So unfortunately, human milk doesn't contain very much vitamin K at all. So that's why that first six months of life, uh, babies are at risk for bleeding. And uh, they have found that either giving vitamin K in a shot shortly after birth or giving several oral doses throughout newborn and infancy, like little drops of vitamin K in the baby's mouth, can prevent um, almost all cases of that kind of vitamin K deficiency bleeding. Wow. Uh, vitamin K deficiency bleeding is rare, but the dro- uh, certain regimens of the drops, um, you can go to evidencebasedbirth.com slash vitamin K to look at the latest research. We just updated that article. There's a lot of research coming out about the oral vitamin K drops, which if people are afraid of the shot, I think, I think sometimes people's reluctance to get vitamin K has to do with two things. One, they believe, you know, natural is best. So they kind of mm-hmm. come from this natural mindset and they have a really hard time believing that there's anything in our body that might be flawed, mm-hmm. which to me is a flawed assumption because, you know, people still die all the time. Bad things happen. We get well, sick. We, we get illnesses. You know, survived as babies. a race for so many years without vitamin K. Why would it need to be introduced now? That was that's well, babies that used to die from it uh-huh. all the time, you know. Yeah, it was before they introduced vitamin K supplementation in the mid 1900s. Um, it was fairly common to hear of babies who bled to death both in the first week of life and in the first six months. Wow, so it's it's it was happening. It's just that there's a lot of things that we do today that that we forget how many babies you know used to die from, yeah. So it's kind of like the, the funny thing about vitamin K too is that for many years, parents were separated from their babies after birth for several days. For example, when my older sisters were born in the 1960s, my mom was only allowed to see them once a day for a very brief visit. Um, and for the rest of the hospital stay for the next like four days or so, she was kept separate. So all these things wow. like bathing, <laughs> vitamin K, putting ointment in the baby's eyes, all of these things were done without the parents' involvement. Mm-hmm. And there was research to back up the vitamin K, but all of these procedures used to be done in the newborn nursery without the parents even knowing that it happened. And all of a sudden now we're together with our babies after birth mm-hmm. and doctors are doing things and having to ask permission And parents are like, well, what are you doing? Well, why are you doing that? And it's almost like everybody forgot why we were doing the vitamin K. Yeah. Even doctors have a hard trouble like explaining the importance of it because they too were just, well, this is something we've always done. And they're not familiar with the huge body of research on this topic. So some things are just kind of artifacts from another era, like the not eating labor. But vitamin K is something that there's lots and lots of research on it. it. They study it all around the world. In other parts of the world, they have 
these huge um, programs where they're monitoring um, rates of bleeding and you know tracking which babies get vitamin K and if it's oral or the shot or nothing. And there's just tons of research on it. And by far, um, the lowest um, rates of, of bleeding are in countries where um, everybody either gets the shot or one of the effective oral regimens. Of course, the problem in the United States is we don't have an FDA-approved oral dosing of vitamin K. So a lot of times parents feel like their choice is the shot or nothing. Oh. Um, there are supplements that are sold online for vitamin K, but they're not regulated by any third party. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some parents in, in, in the United States, that is um, a choice that they make to do the oral drops. Um, and it would be nice if we had an FDA-regulated oral option. I think we would have fewer people refusing vitamin K if that oral option was available. Uh, because uh, people feel that's less invasive. Yeah, I was going to say a shot. They're more okay with it. Yeah. Yeah, but like I said, we have um, we have a series of three videos that go over the evidence on vitamin K and you can get those at, um, just go by, go to evidencebasebirth.com slash vitamin K. And there's like a blue button at the top. It says click here to get your free video series and one page handout. And, um, that'll send you like a video a day to learn more about it. Perfect. So how about, um, castor oil? (laughs) I was actually just asked again about castor oil yesterday and enemas and like, why would you want to use castor oil versus an enema or either? (laughs) And I'm okay, like, well, let me pull up the evidence. <laughs> yes, Castor do. oil is actually um, pretty effective, but only among certain people. So there's a, there's a fair amount of research on castor oil. Um, there was a, a study that came out in 2018 that reviewed eight studies on this topic. It was published by Zamaway et al., and um, overall, they, they concluded that castor oil for induction appears to be effective. However, they caution that the studies on this topic are not high quality and more research is needed. Also, castor oil appears to be most effective among people who've already had a vaginal birth. So if you are a first-time mom, it's much less likely to work. And um, how does it but, work? Huh? How does it work? It just it works by irritating your, your track, right? And then... Castor oil comes from the seeds of the castor bean plant, which is native to Northeast Africa and the Middle East. And it's been used dating back to ancient Egypt to stimulate labor. Um, And it's a powerful laxative. It's often administered to rats, laboratory rats, to make them have diarrhea um, Mm. in studies. And it also seems to stimulate the uterus to contract. So it stimulates both the intestinal tract to move and the uterine muscle to move. And um, so there, there is studies showing that um, you're more than three times as likely to go into labor within 24 hours. Uh, The main drawbacks of castor oil include nausea and um, some cases of diarrhea, obviously. Yeah. And it's just that it can be um, not pleasant. For people, yeah. Um, As I say, I mean, so. if, I mean, being being forty two weeks pregnant isn't pleasant either. But I tell people, um, you kind of kind of weigh the risks and the benefits of. Yeah, you know, there's also been a couple of case reports, uh, two case reports that I've found in the literature of bad outcomes. Um, one woman had an amniotic fluid embolism sixty minutes after taking thirty milliliters of castor oil. Um, of course, you don't know if that is the cause of right. the amniotic fluid embolism, 
but um, it, there was just a short time span between when she took it and when she got very critically ill. Mm-hmm. And then one person who had a prior cesarean, so they had a scar on their uterus. They experienced a ruptured uterus 45 minutes after they took the castor oil to induce oh. labor. So um, that um, is not thought to be safe for people who are having a VBAC. There's not really data on safety other than that right. one case study. Right. But the so one of the things <laughs> about, about quote, natural modalities such as castor oil is they really still need to be done under the, the you know, with yeah. the guidance and the help of a care provider because, um, because they need to be involved in what's going on yeah. and just know that you're doing Just because they're natural doesn't mean that you're just completely safe. You, they're a natural. Well, it is an intervention. Like yeah. castor oil is an intervention. It's it's a medication. It comes from a plant. A lot of medications come from plants. Yep. And um, even though it's effective, it has side effects, and it just is something that needs to be done in collaboration with uh, your care provider. But there are a lot of recipes out there to make it more palatable. Um, we just did a webinar last night at Evidence Based Birth. Talked about castor oil, and you should have seen the chat box there. Me sharing the crazy <laughs> recipes. Um, some recipes we've been given have said that, um, you should blend it with orange juice and a big scoop of vanilla ice cream to make like an orange creamsicle taste. Um, somebody said one cup of champagne, one cup of apricot nectar, Oh my gosh! four tablespoons of almond butter. And then people were sharing like chocolate peanut butter recipes because, because it's an oil, it kind of, it doesn't dissolve in liquid. It kind of floats on top uh-huh. and that's what makes it so gross. So people are trying to use different fatty foods to like make it go down easier. Um, but <laughs> often people say you serve it cold and with a straw and that helps um, get it down. But fun times. How <laughs> fun times. Uh, luckily, I never, I never had to use it, but, or felt the need to. How about red raspberry leaf tea? I hear so many conflicting talk thoughts about this. So somebody says, well, don't drink it early because it, it puts you into labor. And some people say, drink it your entire pregnancy because it tones your uterus. And another, I'm just like, you know what? <laughs> it's so conflicting. And we're not even talking like the big ticket, the big items like vaccines. No, I'm glad you're asking me about little about. things because I can answer the, these little questions. We're not going, we're not going for the big ones today. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so we're doing all the natural um, induction modalities. So uh, red raspberry leaf, you're you're asking all the right questions because we actually have um, a series called a natural induction series. And you go to evidencebasedbirth.com slash blog or or just click on the blog at the evidencebasedbirth.com website and you can filter by topic. And we have a topic called natural induction. So if you just like click on natural induction, you'll see all of these techniques listed there with the evidence. So basically um, people just submit, have submitted to you questions over the years and you've kind of built this database, this bank. Yes. Because you're, and we try, mm-hmm. I we bet try you are a updated. compulsive learner. I bet you are a compulsive reader. And so if somebody asks you a question, you're like, Hmm, I bet. I'm just nothing, really curious. I love learning new things. <laughs> yeah. Like right now we're, we're writing a big article all about the evidence on Pitocin in the third stage of labor and whether or not it's effective for preventing postpartum hemorrhage when it's given like as a shot. Oh, what are you finding? I'm not going to give that away yet, but I will say one of the, one of the cool things about what we do at evidence-based birth is we really try to go into it with an open mind. Like we don't have a preconceived notion about what we're going to find or what is 
good or bad. We just, Anna Bertoni, my research editor and I, we're just really curious. We're like, what's yeah. it going to say? What's you know, what's gonna the research going to oh, say? Here's the thing too. And so, you can huh? read these papers. So, so yeah. that's the thing. I learned a lot about the ketogenic diet a few years ago, back before it was a huge rage. And I would read these papers. There'd either be really stupid stuff, like, like high level, like just don't eat fat, you know, just people, what people could put on Pinterest. And then there would mm-hmm. be these deep, deep research articles, you know, pulled up at the National Institute of Health. Like, and I couldn't read them. I knew they were in English, but every other word, and there was nothing in between, like for me to really understand the chemical, what's going on in the body in, in that diet. And it was so frustrating. So basically what you're doing for the mass population is you're taking these really hard to read science papers and you're kind of distilling them down into like understandable chunks, right? Higher level than right. just a Pinterest infographic, but more, but deeper. And, and you're actually like bringing the research to the point where it's understandable. Yeah. <laughs> and we're finding it for life. you or reading it for you and kind of translating it for you. Yeah. But before we go, I do want to tell you about the red raspberry leaf because I don't want to leave people hanging about that one. Um, red raspberry leaf has been used since the sixth century as a medicine um, but the evidence on it is is very weak. There's only one randomized controlled trial on taking red raspberry leaf in pregnancy. Um, it was a double-blind trial, meaning both the researchers and the women in the study didn't know if they were taking red raspberry leaf tea or a placebo tea. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, was it tea or just... Oh, it wasn't a tea. It was a tablet. So they were actually just swallowing the raspberry leaf and digesting it or a placebo tablet. And so they started taking it at 32 weeks um, daily until the beginning of labor. And they did not find any differences between the two groups. They looked at like every outcome possible. Um, so they, you know, there was no difference in the length of pregnancy, you know, cause a lot of people take that cause they think it'll make pregnancies, um, you know, your labor start earlier. And, um, there's been several animal studies, um, one rat study found that the rats that had red raspberry leaf had longer pregnancies on average. Oh, and no. Their, <laughs> and their offspring, the baby rats, were more likely to have early puberty and Whoa. some health problems in the offspring, offspring, um, in their grandbabies. Um, but they used very high doses in that yeah. study. And then um, they've also done a variety of studies where they've like injected red raspberry leaf into animals or into your uterine tissue. And basically, they've all found conflicting results. Some of the researchers found it caused contractions. Some of them found it relaxed the uterus. and So kind of the opposite of what you want. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, there's just not enough evidence to support human consumption of red raspberry leaf. Um, In the the two studies where they've actually given it to humans, they didn't see any bad outcomes. So... Um, hopefully that answers your yeah, question. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I have one more question for you. What okay. in, in all your research, ha- what has been the most surprising find? Like I'm surprised about your red raspberry leaf tea. That, that's an interesting find. But what is like something that you did kind of com- go in su- suspecting something and then it surprised you? I don't know. I can't remember now when, when I was surprised. I was probably <laughs> surprised by the vitamin K in terms of like, I didn't realize the vast amount of research on vitamin. Like oh, it that, took me like a year to read all the research studies. That's how much research there is on vitamin K supplementation. So I was kind of assuming, oh, it's just one of those things that we do, but we don't know why we right, do it. Right. And then I was like, holy cow, like there is so like, you know, we have hundreds of files downloaded from studies on that. So I think sometimes, um, 
it surprises me when I think there won't be any research and then there is like the pineapple in labor. Like I didn't think, oh, surely nobody studied that. But of course, like they have did. not not in humans, but in, in Petri dishes. So have you been asked to um, help with any research studies or to kind of design any research studies? Well, I used to do that as my, my, day, my, my day job as an assistant professor at a research university. I was on the tenure track doing research, and that's what Babies Are Not Pizzas, my book, kind of talks about my journey into how I started evidence-based birth and how, I, um, how it grew and why I eventually left academia, left the world of um, um, universities. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I don't I, – I, it's something that I'm trained in and I'm able to do, but right now my priority is on writing these articles for yeah. the public. And I feel like I'm making a much bigger impact that way because there's lots of research being done, but very little dissemination of the results. Yes. So especially in this field. Yeah. So basically I'm taking the research and, and making it publicly available. And to me, that's way more important than maybe doing one study or two studies a year, you know, um, for me, it's the translating of the research and getting it to the public that. I really enjoy right now. So I've had people ask me if I would help them with studies and I turn them down because I'm like, I got too much going on. Yeah, too much to read. Uh, <laughs> too much awesome. too many studies to to write about. Yep. So okay. So you have um you have a podcast too, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have your website and you can you can take classes both online and you can find a an instructor in your area. That's new. I didn't know about that. So you Well, so yeah, you can find us. Um we have the podcast, Evidence Based Birth podcast. And on our website, you can look at all of our resources for parents and for professionals. Um, the classes, the childbirth classes that we teach, I see they're hybrid, meaning, uh, but you do have to find a local instructor right. in order to take a class. So you can go to evidencebasedbirth.com slash events and look to see if there's an instructor near you. We don't have an online only option right now. So it has to be through a local instructor, but um, we film a lot of videos that the parents watch from home and they, they meet from zoom at home with their instructor. So they're, they only meet in person two times. The rest of the learning is all online. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to make somebody it easier to ask for, questions and yeah. So you, you still get to ask questions and get that mentorship from your instructor, but you also do a lot of your learning from the comfort of your home, which is what a lot of people today want to do. And you also have a, a premium subscription um, where you can come, you can go, actually go in and download articles, right? Like, to yeah, that's for professionals. For, for mm-hmm. professionals, so find yeah. a professional that is. Yeah, and if you if you hire birth. a professional to be your doula, or, sorry, an instructor, an Evans Space Birth instructor to be your doula or your midwife or your yeah. childbirth educator, they have a special. We have a special parents website that's just for clients of those instructors. So you, if you hire an evidence based birth instructor, you can get this free access to all of our extra materials. I'm spending a lot of time on this way more than I would normally, because I just feel like this is probably one of the most valuable resources that a mom can use. And and now that you have instructors, I'm like all over that because now you have the face to face, you can ask a live question. Yeah. We have, have like, I think around yeah. 220 instructors around the world. That's fantastic. Um, the, the, what I would encourage if any of your listeners are listening and they're first time parents is to check out the book though, because I think that's a great way to start because it can be a little intimidating to go to the evidence-based birth website and see like this massive amounts of research and be like, well, where do I even get yeah. started? But Babies Are Not Pizzas, They're Born Not Delivered is available on Amazon. And it is um, 
it is basically a narrative or a story of how I got evidence-based care and how my life was transformed by it. But in particular, in chapter two, I go through, I give like a brief overview of the evidence on like almost everything. <laughs> so it's real condensed. It's kind of like a primer on oh, the evidence cool. on mm-hmm. um, everything that happens typically in hospitals. So if you go to evidencebasedbirth.com slash book, you, you, there's a, a way to download the first chapter if you want to just test it out and see if it's a book you're interested yeah, in. That's but so I think cool. chapter two is actually the, the chapter where I dive into kind of give an overview of the evidence and kind of give you a crash course. Oh my goodness. In Fascinating. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else we should make sure they know? Oh, no, that's great. Thank you so much for letting me come on. We covered a lot of topics. I know, we went pretty far. So thank you so much for your time. And please, please do check out Rebecca's resources. They are second to none. (laughs) Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. And thank you to LaunchPod Media, who produces these podcasts.